Good morning. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Today on Byline Mendocino, I'll have a conversation with Art Harwood about the past, present, and future of forestry in Mendocino County. Art Harwood's roots go back several generations in northern Mendocino. His grandfather settled in Branscombe, where he started in the forest products industry, and his father grew the family business, Harwood Forest Products, to great success. When Art joined the family business, their lumber mill west of Laytonville was one of the larger employers in Mendocino County. During the 1990s, Art Harwood worked to facilitate understanding between environmental protesters and local timber workers, an experience he spoke about two weeks ago at a panel hosted by the Mendocino County Museum, part of the exhibit called The Car Bombing of Judy Berry, A Community Remembers. Art Harwood and I talked about his family, the timber wars, his work with Judy Berry, and how Redwood's summer in 1990 led to his involvement in the formation of the Redwood Forest Foundation, or REFI. REFI is a nonprofit timber company that purchased 50,000 acres of land previously owned and logged by Georgia Pacific to manage it for the public good. My name is Art Harwood, and I am a lifelong resident of Mendocino County with pretty deep roots here. I uh, did run one of the largest businesses, private businesses in Mendocino County, Harwood Products, which is a family-owned lumber mill. So we want to talk today about the kind of past, present, and future of forestry in Mendocino County because you have that kind of big picture view from your dad and granddad coming into the forest products industry, your many decades in it, and now your involvement with REFI and, the, and looking toward the future. So let's start with the story of how your family got involved in forestry. Well, um, my family got involved in forestry. I guess, I guess if I really wanted to go way back, um, my family did come across the plains in covered wagons and settled in Ukiah Valley. They uh, were the York family, and there's uh, York Creek north of Ukiah that's named after them. And the old ranch is still there, not owned by my family, but the old ranch house where my both my grandmother and my father were born in the same room in the same house still stands. You can see it from the freeway when you drive by. Um, so that part of the family used to, the earliest story I have of being in the forest products was in the winter time, or it's probably the spring when the bark was loose, used to harvest tan bark and sell it. So that was kind of the earliest forest products. Uh, from that, uh, that was my grandmother's family, and she ended up being a school teacher, taught uh, in Mina of all places. Mina. Yeah. Is very remote. <laughs> Very remote. <laughs> That's like east of Kovalo. Uh, and so she she married my grandfather, who was born and raised in Oakland, moved here to Laytonville, and they got married and started some businesses in Laytonville. What they did is they moved to Branscombe. My father, who uh, was really the impetus for the forest products, um, Graduated from Laytonville High School, second graduating class ever from Laytonville High School. That was in what year? That was in probably around 1942 or three. And so immediately upon graduation, he joined the Navy because World War II was going on. And 
Uh, he was going to be uh, fly uh, airplanes off of carriers, but the war ended, and so he didn't have to do that. And he got out of the Navy, uh, went on to college, Santa Rosa Junior College, and UC Berkeley, got a degree in business, um, yeah, and met uh, my mom there. But in the t during the time when he left to join the Navy and went off to college, my grandparents moved from Laytonville to Branscombe, where they, they bought out the holdings of John Branscombe, who founded Branscombe in the 1880s, built a Branscombe store, which still stands. And so, so this is well, the... Well, so for people who don't know Mendocino very well, Branscombe's a little bit off the beaten path, too. Uh, well, I always refer to Branscombe as the center of the universe, and it's hard to dispute that. Fair enough. It's certainly the center of Mendocino County. <laughs> <laughs> well, the center of the universe if you live in Branscombe. Or it's the halfway point between the coast and Laytonville. There you go. That uh, works. Yeah, so if you drive up Highway 101 to Laytonville and hang a left or go west, um, it is halfway between Laytonville and Westport, essentially. So, Another booming metropolis. Yeah, but when I was growing up, it was a mill town, and there were probably at one time 20 to 30 sawmills in Branscombe, but they were little mills. And um, when my my grandparents moved there and bought the Branscombe store, they they actually started a remanufacturing plant, a planing mill, to service all the little sawmills because the little sawmills would produce lumber but they had no way of processing it so they brought it to a central processing place and uh, my grandfather could process it for him and then ship it you know into the into the market and when my father got out of uh, uc berkeley he went to work for union lumber company in fort bragg and he learned to be a lumber grader and he was a certified lumber grader and so to to process lumber and sell it into the market, you needed to be able to put a stamp on it, mm -hmm. which told you the tells you the structural integrity of the piece. And so he learned to do that. And then he, uh, my grandfather, made him an offer to be his business partner. And he came back to Branscombe, married my mother, who was a year, a couple years behind him at UC Berkeley, and uh, and went into the lumber business. So they had this planing mill, and then they built a small uh, sawmill and over time um, you know our family mill kind of prospered and the other mills uh, it's really the story of the lumber industry uh, on a global basis I mean the the small inefficient mills um, go by the wayside and the more efficient ones prosper and uh, even today that is true and so where our mill was uh, fairly efficient at one time it became inefficient and the uh, the amount of capital to have an efficient mill is staggering I mean wow it's a lot of money what's an efficient mill versus an inefficient mill well an efficient mill has high recovery which means that they recover more out of every log than mills that don't have high recovery. So that's number one, and that's a huge... So you get more lumber out of each log. That is correct. How do you recover more from a log? Well, you have uh, thinner saws. Oh, I see. So a lot of it gets eaten up in the sawdust. That is correct. Okay. You have uh, machinery that cuts more accurately. 
So computers are involved here? Yes. Robotics? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And it's scanners, and, I mean, it's uh, it's all space-age, high-tech Lots stuff. Lots of math, it sounds like. Lots of math. So, and that's all about making timber production profitable. That is correct. All right. Well, let's get back to your family because that was really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And each of these issues leads to these larger conversations. So I think that's good. But um, so your family is now, your dad has teamed up with your grandpa and they are producing finished timber products in Branscombe and the smaller mills are starting to go under. Is your family absorbing uh, the business and any kind of timber land or anything like that? Uh, we were not buying timber land during that time. and But, you know, we were, what logs were available were flowing to our our sawmill as other mills uh, went down. A lot of the mills just burnt down and then people... Really? Well, yeah, because that was, that was how most of them went. Um, Is that just because there's so much dry wood around? Yeah, and, and you had these TP burners. What's a teepee burner? Teepee burner is an old metal burner that looks like a teepee. So like a, uh, and they could be maybe 20, 30 feet tall and maybe 20, 30 feet in diameter. And they have a little crossed wires on the top and they sort of look like rusted corrugated metal. Okay, so those are all over the county. Yes, that's old. Everywhere you see one is an old sawmill or some sort of wood products uh, processing site and they would just get rid of the waste there yeah you'd burn it um let's talk about how you got involved with your family's business i mean obviously it's your family's business so it was a a place where you might go but not guaranteed no uh well um yeah i just you know i got out of college and uh went traveling for a while and what'd you study I studied uh, political science, of all things. So, But, you know, all the time I was going to school in high school and in college, I worked at the sawmill during the summers and, you know, cleaning up the mill every day of the week. So, um, so I had a good understanding of um, what went on. And so finally, when I was ready to settle down, I went to work full time and and that was right at the time. I mean, the business really prospered for about the mid '60s to maybe about 19 late '70s. Yes, 1979. And then uh, what happened is that um, during those times, inflation was kind of a big deal, and and my father he knew how to how to play inflation. He uh, he could buy trees. He could log uh, log them and sell them. By the time he sold the lumber, uh, the value of what he had bought had gone way up because of the inflation. So it was a great deal, and it worked really well for about you know ten or fifteen years until uh, along came 1979, and uh, Paul Volcker became the Fed chairman, and interest rates shot up to 20 percent, and that was the end of that and at the time we had um we were highly leveraged as a company owned a lot of timberland which was no longer economically viable so we just gave that all back to the banks to the lenders it was you kind of hit a wall in 1979 yeah 
we kind of limped along for the next 25 years. Uh, we'd have a good year or two, and, uh, but we were always highly leveraged. So then you'd have a year where, or two where the economy wasn't so good, and you just didn't, you know, we, we were a cash flow company. We never had the, uh, the ability to just say, well, we'll just take, you know, the next three months off or six months off and come you back when the market's better. You had to always be producing. You had to always produce. And so in 2008, the economy collapsed. Well, it was uh, 2008, yes. And that basically signaled the end for your company. What happened is that with that financial meltdown, there was no capital available. And if you were a leveraged company, you were done. And that was us. So that was it. I mean, there was no working out of that one. It was like, okay, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have capital, it's all over. So that's So it what wasn't happened. the environmentalists who shut down your mill. It was never the environmentalists. <laughs> never. No. Or the spotted owl. <laughs> or the spotted owl. No. It was globalization and the world financial picture that, that caused our mill to not be efficient enough to survive. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. You're listening to a conversation with Art Harwood of Harwood Forest Products and the Redwood Forest Foundation about the past, present, and future of forestry in Mendocino County. So I definitely want to touch on a little bit of your time through the 90s because the reason that I'm talking to you now is because we met officially at the panel at the Willits Museum about your work with Judy Berry and the Timber Worker Alliance with the environmentalists during Redwood Summer, which you were a lovely reality check on <laughs> the the alliance part of that and what was really uh, the the goal was to diffuse any violence and have the opposing sides, so to speak, talking with each other to make sure that things stayed peaceful. But you were a small local mill, smaller still big, yes. but smaller local mill uh, in the 90s during what was called the Timber Wars, where there were these giant corporate mills and corporate timber companies just going crazy on the landscape in Mendocino County and, and logging um, to infinity, as Harry Merlow of LP used to say. <laughs> they were taking everything, including I was reminded, they did dumpster logging where they went out and took dumpsters into the woods and like put anything that would fit in the dumpster. They would just chuck it in and take it to the mill. And I don't know, they chipped it up and turned it into wafer board. Um, so... I'm really curious if you could talk about your perspective if we're talking about the the sides, right? The different sides of of the what might be called the timber wars, but just what was going on at that time with the environmentalists and the timber companies, but then you were kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. Well, um I guess the I'll start by saying that the environmentalists were not wrong in what they saw going on in our forests. In fact, they were right. <clears throat> And but they weren't the only ones that knew that. I mean, I knew that, um, and the people that worked in the timber industry knew that. But you know, we didn't control what was going on. And in fact, uh, I always remember my father telling me the story about meeting with uh, the guy that was running Union Lumber Company at the time, a guy named Jim Coon. Actually, it was Georgia Pacific who had bought out Union Lumber Company. But it was the Fort Bragg uh, operations of 200 and some thousand acres. And, and uh, what Jim Kuhn told him, he says, you know, bud, he says, um, 
he says, we're cutting way too much. It's not sustainable. And I know it, and we all know it, I, he said. But there's really nothing. So there's nothing I can do about it. Because if I want to complain and make a stink, they will replace me tomorrow and just get somebody else in here who will liquidate that forest land. So that was... Uh, um, that was really what we were all up against, not just people managing these companies, but um, really the workers. So while we all knew what was going on, basically you had to get a paycheck, you had to feed your family, and so we're, you know, we all were kind of stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so that was... Um, but we all knew that, and so I just I just want to point that out because when uh, the timber wars came along, uh, virtually all uh, mill and logging workers sided with the big companies. It wasn't because we wanted to side with the big companies. It's because we felt like that's where we had to go for the best outcome for us, and so which was unfortunate. And you know, one of the things when I look at what's going on today i mean it's still kind of the same thing it's uh the workers just really you know they don't have a place to go they can't go against the people that are feeding them otherwise they're not going to get fed right right so, they're going to lose their jobs if they speak out that is correct and so it's uh they're kind of between a rock and a hard spot right well you did work with judy though Yes, absolutely. You want to talk about the work you did with her? Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I'll just start by saying that when I first, uh, well, I'll, I'll start by saying when I first became aware of Earth First, because it is an interesting story. And, and you know, all I knew about Earth First at the time was that they were a terrorist organization that used monkey wrenching and sabotage and whatever else to mess with people that they didn't agree with so that's what we knew about earth first rightly or wrongly right as it turned out wrongly but that's okay that's was the times and um so the first that we knew that they they were around was that they were blockading a timber sale that my family had purchased from the bureau land management on elkhorn ridge which is uh northwest of Branscombe and it really wasn't much of a sale but um you know all of a sudden we're like hearing oh yeah you know we got all these protesters and they don't want us to log and we're like man I don't know why they want want to stop that sale because it's really not very good so it's like okay finally we just said uh you know I wasn't dealing with them but our loggers and for foresters were and and we just finally said, look, if, it's, if this is that important to those people, then BLM, we don't care. You go find us another place to you substitute the log somewhere else. And so that's what ended up happening uh, with that particular sale. It just sounds like such a quaint little story from yeah. the early days yeah. where, you know, the first blockade happened. Oh, fine, we'll just work it out. That is not yeah. what happens now. So <laughs> then from that, you know, we started looking around at who these Earth Firsters were, and we were recognizing these were 
familiar faces and we're going, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, your kids are in my kids' class. Your kids play on the same little league teams and soccer teams. And so, you know, you're part of this community. And it's like, maybe we better have a conversation here. And so, so we started talking with Earth First. And I always like to tell the story that, the you know, the Earth First leader's daughter was my son's girlfriend in fifth grade. That's so Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it's like, whoa, okay. (laughs) I'm glad everyone survived. Yeah. So, um, so we started having these, um, we started having these conversations. This is where uh, I always want to give a lot of credit to uh, Steve Zweibach, who uh, passed away this last summer, but Steve was just a, um, a community uh, gem, and um, he, he really helped us a lot because he had facilitation skills that could bring people together, and, and he's got about a probably a 30-year track record of bringing us together with environmentalists. But um, anyway, so we started having meetings. We started meeting with our local Earth Firsters, and and we had a meeting or two, and pretty soon they go, hey, you know, there's this person we want to bring named Judy Berry. Can we bring her to the meeting? I was like, fine, you know, whatever. I don't care who comes to the meeting. <laughs> I mean, bring her along. So that's the first uh, we ever met of Judy. And then, uh, do you remember where that meeting was? Yeah, it was in Laytonville. Um, so during that time, uh, we had a little incident in our schools where one of the parents, uh, there's a little book, Dr. Seuss book called The Lorax, that was kind of anti logging and truffula trees. You know, they were, uh, kind of making that required reading in the schools in one class. And so this parent uh, petitioned to have that, you know, not taken out of the schools, but let's just don't make it required reading. Well, uh, Judy Berry <laughs> saw that as an opportunity, and she turned that into an international incident. The town that banned the Lorax. The town that banned the Lorax. And we had press from all over the world come to our school board meeting. I was a school board member. <laughs> and um, Wow. And so, and it was at that time that I realized that we were playing a, a game. There were different rules than, than I had ever dreamt of. And of course, Judy and I, you know, we, you know, we could speak to each other. I'm like, Judy, you set us up. <laughs> so anyway, so we had these, uh, you know, these meetings that led to the Lorax. And then, I don't know, these, we kind of had all the meetings we needed to have and quit that and and then we all knew each other we all knew each other yeah (laughs) yeah well you know it was like we were cool with each other and you knew nobody was going to sabotage any equipment yeah do anything like that yeah so we we did uh we did what a community needs to do we talked it out and went on with life and didn't have any trouble with each other and um so so then after that, soon after, I kind of forget how long after, but but probably within the next 6 to 12 months, um, I got a call from Judy, and she said, oh, you know, we're going to do this, uh, we're going to do this deal called Mississippi Summer in the Redwoods, and I'm really 
concern that there's could be violence and could you help with bringing some mill workers and loggers together so we can maybe talk about this and hopefully not it not turn into a violent thing and i'm like well judy there's an easier way i said don't do it <laughs> oh well we're not <laughs> we're doing it so it's like okay well i get it you know so okay i'll i'll see what i can do mm-hmm. and so i i did uh get hold of uh steve's why back first <laughs> that's the always, best ally always the first call yeah. and um and we got hold of you know all the loggers in the county i was really just looking at some notes that I dug up of all the people that attended those meetings. It's a pretty interesting uh, group. And so we had, um, uh, we got all the loggers together and Judy and whoever she deemed, um, you know, needed to be there from the uh, environmental side. And and we started meeting, and then, you know, when we first started, they were rough meetings. I mean, yeah. our it was uh, Steve Zweibach used to like to say that our first agreement was that, okay, no one's going to bring guns to the meetings. So that was good, you know. It's like, okay, we can communicate. <laughs> right. We don't have our weapons. Leave the weapons in the truck. Yeah. Although but the environmentalists were never going to bring guns, right? No, but they might bring bombs or hey now or spy. We didn't know. You got <laughs> to remember. You got to remember. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. You yeah. didn't know. I mean, at this at this you're point, you're hearing a lot about them. That's right. Yeah, got at it. At this point in time, it's a different conversation. Yeah. At that point in time, we didn't know. You know. Right. Were they spiking trees? I mean, there was a sawmill worker in Cloverdale got his half his face tore off from a spike. So, yeah, George Alexander. Yeah. So I mean, we're that's that's all we knew. Right. Um, well, did so I know that at some point around this time, the local Earth First group renounced tree spiking. Were you guys paying any attention to that, or did that message get to you? Oh no, that got to us, and I think that was part of what uh, made from my perspective, Redwood Summer, a uh, success, was that, um, as it turned out, other than the bombing of Judy and Daryl, there was no violence. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. I'm speaking with third-generation Mendocino County mill owner Art Harwood. During the Timber Wars in the 1990s, Art worked with Judy Berry and Earth First to build understanding between loggers and environmentalists and diffuse violence in our community. More recently, he helped to found the Redwood Forest Foundation, or REFI. Do you think that Redwood Summer made long-term changes to Mendocino County? Um, I don't know. I think, I think not so much. Um, LP did... They cut and they ran. GP cut and they ran. Palco cut and maybe they got run off, but they're gone. So, yeah, with headwaters though. Headwaters. They so, weren't able to cut headwaters. So that was a, that was a big deal. So um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I guess that some of the uh, some of the rules we have now. I mean, I don't think it stopped anything what was going on then. But you have different logging rules now, and I think that's Redwood Summer had something to do mm-hmm. with that, for sure. It also had a it kind of had a long term effect on you, right? 
I mean, when you talk about what happened with Refi. Well, yes. Um, so that's <laughs> that's another story. Um, yeah. So Redwood Summer, it came and went, and I don't know, a year or two after that, uh, LP made the announcement, Louisiana Pacific made the announcement, they were going to sell their 230,000 acres of timberland on the north coast, uh, most of which was in Mendocino County. And I got this phone call from Charles Peterson, who was the fifth district supervisor, which was the south coast of Mendocino County, or as we refer to him as the environmentalist supervisor. And so Charles, uh, and Charles was cool during Redwood summer. He was great, really. And he always went out of his way to try to bridge the gap between workers and environmentalists. But anyways, Charles called me. He said, said you know, the, this LP land's um, going up for, you know, is going on the market. And there's a group of people, um, you know, environmentalists, and he gave me some names that, uh, and financial people, whatever, that that would like to get together and discuss whether or not we could maybe purchase that property and manage it, uh, you know, on behalf of the community. I said, well, yeah, let's let's have that discussion. And so, um, so the first meeting was at Henry Gunling's house in out in the middle of nowhere, uh, between Philo and elk i guess uh <laughs> it's past tendy woods yeah kind of thing okay. yeah and um so there were a group of uh environmentalists i mean uh, bill heil linda perkins uh, from Mika, the albion nation yeah, albion nation mika wawona uh, i'm Wonderful. sure there were another one or two more mika had been really involved in the forest advisory committee forest advisory committee that is correct that's another another chapter another chapter uh, as was Henry Gunling, and uh, so and we had um, uh, financial people. Uh, Henry was a financial people. We had uh, resource professionals, um, you know, foresters. We had big time financial people actually from that knew how to put stuff together. And so we sat down talking about it and said, "Okay, let's sounds good. Let's do it." Let's buy this Let's property. Buy LP. Let's buy LP. That, and, you guys had some chutzpah. Yeah, and uh, but the only reason we could do it was because we had developed relationships because of Redwood Summer, really. So I, I think that's the legacy in in my mind. Um, we developed relationships, and it didn't mean that we were ready to sit down and agree on everything because we weren't. Uh, we had a lot of conversations, and uh, and as it turned out, uh, we were just not prepared to make a legitimate offer mm -hmm. on LP. But but that was okay because uh, it was too bad in a way. I'll circle back to that. But but at the same time, we weren't ready. You know, we needed to have bylaws and you know everything else but more, more important than that we needed to be, we needed to have a conversation about what it looked like what we wanted to do and this is once again thank you steve this is why back mm -hmm. so the business model after you get the forest how are you gonna make money 
well, to pay your gonna, land payments. How are we going to manage it? And those yeah. those were tough. Yeah. Um, you know, those were tough conversations. But everybody, you know, we all agreed that that we couldn't do anything without everybody being, um, you know, together mm-hmm. in in agreement. So it wasn't like a democratic deal where, yeah, if you you know you're going to vote on it and whoever wins wins it was everybody needs to agree and so it was um you know it was it took environmentalists having to think like wall streeters it took industry timber industry people having to think like environmentalists and so we had to learn so you know the 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 trust we had developed through redwood summer is that was important because we knew we didn't necessarily agree on everything, but we knew we trusted each other enough to know that we could have this conversation and and we could hopefully get there, and we did. And it took um, it took ten years. Wow! It took from 10 years. the early nineties to the early two thousands. That is correct. And uh, well, it was actually I think it was two thousand and seven when we finally made the deal huh okay so but in the meantime mrc mendocino redwood company came in and bought LP. they came in and bought lp and and you know the 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 real bummer from my standpoint of that was that they bought lp for like i don't know 700 and some dollars an acre and if we could have bought lp for that this community organization we would have it paid for, yeah, and we, it would be generating funds for the community, and it would be a forest that people would really be proud of. And why could they get? Why could MRC get it for that cheap? And Refi, the people who were starting Redwood Forest Foundation, couldn't. We were not a legitimate organization at the time. We were too late. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't negotiate that. You didn't have the muscle to negotiate it. No. Basically, if you have, uh, as Charles Hurwitz said, the the golden rule, right? He who has the gold rules, you know, they they have the uh, financing and the wherewithal to do these deals, and community organizations do not. But you actually did purchase Timberland, so how did that happen? Well, that happened because the Timo that bought... Um, Georgia Pacific and, and Timos again are timber investment management organizations was what was uh, it called well it was called Hawthorne Timber right and it was owned by the Washington State Public Employees Union Washington's Teachers Union and managed by Campbell Group and so Campbell Group they knew about um, Refi and and what these Timos do is um, you know, they they make an investment and they hold it for 10 years and they flip it. And that's how, that is their business model. So Hawthorne bought it, held it, you know, 10 years is coming up. They're getting ready to flip it. And they looked at Refi and said, well, um, you know, here's an organization that can maybe pay the most money. And so they worked with us. So I, I got to give Campbell a lot of credit for that I mean there was some controversy about maybe how they manage things but 
they did us a favor because mm -hmm. they actually worked with us and stuck with us and they brought in the financing which was bank of america and without them it never would have happened now it turns out that it was a you know it wasn't the deal that uh mendocino redwood got or the fisher family got when they bought lp but but it was a deal and you could get you could get in the door. You could get ownership over the land. That is correct. But I... everybody who got their hands on LP and GP's land ended up with really, really overharvested land. That is correct. Because <clears throat> they had cut everything they possibly could and then sold it. Yes. So you now own fifty thousand acres of land that has been very severely logged that is correct so looking at what refi's management model is going to be how do you guys approach that well you know you, you do have to balance paying back the loan with um you know what you can take off the land and so what we could have done if we would have had the deal that the fishers got when they bought lp uh, we could have done amazing things out on the UXL Redwood Forest, but we didn't get that deal. We got a highly leveraged, much more highly leveraged deal. And, and the things, there's two things that have um, really made a big difference. One is the sale of conservation easements. So basically, when we bought the 50,000 acres, it was uh, it was a bunch of 160-acre parcels that was called the patents. And what we, what we did is um, we sold the patents to the state and said, okay, we're going to make it one parcel. It's going to be 50,000 acres. And for that, uh, the state gave Refi, I forget, 19 or $20 million. How much did you end up paying for the land? <clears throat> I think it was $60 million. Okay, so you've got a $60 million debt that you need to pay. Correct. And you got $19 million from the state. $19 from the state. <clears throat> and then Refi has subsequently been getting, uh, selling a lot of carbon credits. So, and I, I'm not closely involved with Refi anymore, but I think they probably got, you know, probably that much money again in carbon credits. But they had a $60 million uh note at six percent interest so all that was all those deals were doing was paying the interest oh wow <laughs> and so you know refi's still leveraged and but i think the board's doing a good job and you know i guess one of the things i'll say is that uh the, the way the conservation easements uh, were intended to work in this deals we'd make the deal we'd sell the easements pay down the debt a certain amount and then uh, manage the property and mm -hmm. things would work. And what happened is that at the time, uh, the Fisher family, Mendocino Redwood, was a, really did not like the fact that the Redwood Forest Foundation bought this timberland. They, nobody knew we were negotiating it. We kept, I don't know how we did that, but we kept a pretty good secret. And their nose was out of joint. And so, you know, they they went to the nth degree to prevent us from getting being able to uh sell these easements so what happened is that mendocino redwood um or the fishers um you know they they kind of stepped in and and used you know they're billion multi-billionaires and they use their muscle to 
slow down this whole process. And they slowed this process down for several years. Of course, the interest clock was ticking on all that. And so basically, uh, they didn't stop it, uh, nor did they stop REFI, but they certainly went out of their way to try. And it costs not just REFI, but but really the public, because it's that forest is being managed for the benefit of the public. It, it cost us all a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's business, and that's kind of the... <laughs> the world we live in right so they didn't like another timber company coming to town they didn't want to compete with nonprofits over that makes sense <laughs> conservation easement yeah funding. <laughs> so they wanted that conservation easement funding for themselves that is correct and they delayed <laughs> refi getting the conservation easement for five years which meant that you accrued interest the entire time and when you finally got the 19 million it didn't cut down on your principal. That is correct. And you still have to figure out how to pay it off. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. My guest is Art Harwood of Harwood Forest Products and the Redwood Forest Foundation, or REFI. When you're talking about forests, especially forests that have been ravaged and need help to recover, which is, I think, part of what Ruffy's mission is, is to ha- manage the land for forest health and for the community. That's a really hard place to be in when you have those pressure to have to make money off the land. Well, it, it is an issue. And uh, I mean, you've you've got this financial nut mm-hmm. that you have to crack. And, and, you know, everybody wants to slow the cut down and to grow big trees. But... Um, you got to pay the loan. The bills do now. But there are some easy decisions, right? Like when you talk about road building. And it, there are things that you won't do out there, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you're you're probably leading up to the use of herbicides. And I thought about it, but I know that that's and... been something that Refi has talked about. Well, it is something. But Refi has made the decision not to use them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's been successful up to this point but i mean we'll we'll i don't think that story's completely told yet but i think i know that they're making a concerted effort to not use hack and squirt uh which is a way of killing tan oaks um and to con- and use an herbicide to control brush uh you know you can still do it there's just the other ways are more expensive and Mm -hmm. theoretically over time you produce less merchantable timber but then you know there's other other value than just traditional uh the traditional value that a timber company would assign to a forest and so and and one of them are the tan oaks and i mean it was uh, i always like to tell the story but uh of course over time, this was all traditional uh, tribal land, and there were various Indian tribes that would go out and use that. And uh, we had uh, did a tour with uh, a couple of the tribal people, uh, Lewis Hoagland and Lillian Frazier. Lillian was Lewis's aunt, and Lewis was the chairman of uh, one of the one of the tribal groups. And so we went out on the forest, and we're driving around and I'm going, well, you know, this is all great. And, um, but well, we have this problem here in that we have too many tan oaks and 
you know, we're trying to figure out how we're going to deal with them. And, you know, in the traditional way is you, you know, you hack and squirt them, use poison to get rid of them. And we don't want to do that. We just don't know what to do. And, and Lillian, who was a tribal elder, Cotto tribe, um, she pipes up and she says, well, we don't think that tan oaks are a problem because, you know, they produce acorns and those are very important. Uh, that's a very important source of, well, food and, you know, to tribal people traditionally and also to migrating animals and animals that live there. And she's like, why do you need to, why do you need to get rid of them? It's like, oh, okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe we need to rethink that. So I went back to the refi board and I said, you know, the, you know, these Indian tribes, think that we need to look differently at at this and so um the board to their credit just immediately said well one of the foresters said you know i know this place out this eight acres out on this forest it would be a perfect uh acorn grove to dedicate to tribal use and the board immediately said let's do it and so it's um there's eight acre acorn grove that's dedicated to it's called Chinkapin Springs, and got these big, beautiful tan oaks, and um, and basically, it's there for whatever uh, tribal people want to do with it. And you know, that's another story. In, yeah. Now we're starting to get into the future, right? Yeah. So what what is the future of our relationship with the forest, and how we're going to live with the forest in a sustainable way? Well, I think that is the next step in Refi's evolution. So when when we first bought, made the deal to purchase the USAL Redwood Forest, we went out and we did a series of community meetings. There were three things that the community really wanted to uh, have a say in. Uh, one of them was they wanted uh, access in terms of mainly tourism. And Being able to go spend time in the place. That is correct. The other is they wanted input into how we dealt with the tan oaks because no one liked the hack and the squirt. So people wanted, uh, they wanted input into that to see if, you know, what could be done. And, uh, and the third is uh, everybody agreed that, uh, that indigenous people needed to have a uh, role and what went on out there and that's what got me taking tribal people uh, out on the forest and so of those three things uh i think probably the most work has been done on the tan oak stuff and you know to refi's credit they have not used herbicides yet i don't think they ever will but it's you know that's they had to make some tough decisions around that um the tourism is uh, really not happened, um, which is too bad, but I think there's starting to be some discussion around that. And that's because of the financial situation, right? The insurance realities? Well, insurance is, yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the tribal stuff, and there's been um, kind of hits and misses. I mean, we've had... Um, We've had tours, uh, one of the first tours we had to the Acorn Grove. We had uh, 10 different California Indian tribes represented. 
and um, it was pretty interesting. It was interesting for me because when we got out and we looked at it and people started talking about it and it, and it got real emotional and I'll just never forget it because it was like these tribal people that were out there, they had never had the opportunity from a large landowner, I guess, to do something like this. And I don't know if it was, they never asked or no one ever offered but it just never happened and it was like this was a this was a huge deal to the people that were out there and there were there were tears flowing and it was well it just made me realize that we got to do way more uh for uh tribal people to have uh say in what goes on in our forest well you know refi's a uh, it's one for us, and maybe what we do there can be looked at and yeah. used in in other forests. So, well, Refi's really doing what Cal Fire says they're doing in Jackson State, right? It's a demonstration forest that's supposed to be looking at all these different best practices. But Refi is really trying to do that, well, and Re- it kind of looks a little different. Yeah, and Refi is. Um, one of the big differences is that Jackson State Forest not only has no debt, but they have revenue from net operating revenue from timber sales. So they can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Refi really is limited by the amount of debt and the amount that uh, Refi can log. In fact, the logging is not going to support the community stuff out there. I mean, it's going to support paying the debt and, and Refi needs to look for different ways to, um, you know, make the, the tourism and, you know, make provide for access to tribal entities and, and, and they're doing that, but it's a, it's like grants. Yeah. It's a tough road, you know, and everybody's looking for grants. So that's not yeah. easy. What's really great because if I if I go back to Indian tribes, uh, these shaded fuel breaks. Uh, what a shaded fuel break is 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 it's a it's a fire break, and basically you put them on top of ridges. And what you do is you want to have large trees, an overstory, and then you remove all the brush underneath or the ladder fuel, as it's referred to. And so when a fire comes up, you can stop it right there and so that what you have to do to maintain a fuel break is you have to you have to keep the ladder fuels out from underneath the large trees well in this case uh, on this land the large trees are tan oaks big and the tan oaks that produce the most acorns are big tan oaks and and the other thing is once you have this canopy then the the ladder fuel doesn't really grow back. That's right. That's right. It kind of suppresses it. It suppresses it. So the wonderful thing is, is that while, you know, Refi has dedicated eight acres to Indian tribes to go, you know, collect acorns or, or do whatever tribal or ceremonial stuff they might wish, there's a 50,000-acre forest that is available to them if they want to use it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Refi has made the offer, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing these shaded fuel breaks. I mean, heck, it's all, 
these fuel bricks are all beside all weather roads. I mean, you, I mean which means that you can take elders out there and um, and it's all over these fifty thousand acres. I it's love the amazing. idea of of, of the, the symbiosis between the fire protection and the traditional uses of the acorn trees. It's yeah. kind of a neat idea. No, it's 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 awesome. So it's just you know how we how we uh, get people out there and make it make it happen. It's exciting, really, and extremely meaningful, as you yes. said. It matters. Well, okay. So where do we go from here? We've touched on the past, the present, and the future. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, well, I happen to think that there is a role for very small producers. I think I said earlier that, you know, you got to have low costs and high recovery, but, but if you're, there is an alternative to that. You could be a very small player. Uh, I think Willits, Redwood Company and Willits would be a, a perfect example of that. Just super high quality product. That is correct. And you can make that um, work and so what I think is that that might be the future here mm -hmm. that small operators small operators that kind of like Willits Redwood and um, you know more of those is it's still a big disadvantage not having a place you know to go with your waste with your right the economy of and, scale one part of the future that we haven't touched on is climate and how that's changing yeah. everything in the forest right that's, this conversation we've been having is sort of makes logical sense according to the rules that we've been living with for the last, you know, couple centuries. But it seems like those rules are getting ready to get turned on their head with climate and the impacts that will be happening in the Redwood region. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And a lot of people are talking about what kind, what kind of thinning and what kind of carbon impacts does that have and. How, do the, how does the fire really affect the ecosystem and without the drying and the warming and, you know, how's that going to affect the, the redwoods? And is Refi having these conversations? Uh, Refi is having these conversations. And what I think Refi would hope to do would be able to demonstrate these things. Yeah. And, and, and we would hope that Jackson State Forest would be demonstrating these things i mean it's jackson demonstration state forest and so um both, I, both of those things demonstration and state for it's a publicly owned yeah place that's fifty thousand acres as well it's kind of like ruffy and jackson state yeah, have it's a totally different reflections of each totally other totally different state than you yeah. saw but there's a lot that can be is in much better shape than you saw oh yes oh yes interesting yeah i mean it's uh it's a fabulous forest i mean I mean, you may quibble over how they're managing, but it's... I do love it. <laughs> it's a fabulous forest, yeah. Yeah, it feels really vibrant and alive. It is. In lots of parts of it, for sure. All right, well, Art Harwood, thank you. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here, and, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to talk about old times, <laughs> which is what we've been doing. <laughs> I know. These stories, we just have to preserve them somehow or learn them. I learned a lot in this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. <laughs> this has been Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. 
I've been speaking with Art Harwood of Branscombe about the past, present, and future of our relationship with the forests in Mendocino County. You can see a video of last month's panel presentation at the Mendocino County Museum entitled Remembering Judy Berry, Building Bridges with Timber Workers, featuring Art Harwood, Walter Smith, Ernie Pardini, and Naomi Wagner, posted on YouTube by Daryl Cherney, or visit mendocinocountymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. Where you going today, my friend? Well, I thought I would head south. I gotta if you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Don't you let them stop you or distract you from what's right. Always keep in mind the trees, let them be your guiding light. Where you going today, my friends? Or didn't you hear the news about Judy and Daryl, a planted bomb, and the FBI's abuse? About locking up the victims while Assassins are running free About free to say what's on your mind Till you mess with the big money Friends, the trees are calling